Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you. LeadSA.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Joining us from Reading this time around, uh, Happy New Year and welcome to the show, Chris. Hello, Africa, yes, and uh, welcome from Reading, which is sort of halfway across the bottom of England. <laughs> what are you doing in Reading this time around? Well, it's the Association for Science Education Conference, which happens every January, and I've been asked to come here by one of the examining boards, the Oxford and Cambridge Exam Board, who set GCSE and A-level exams for the UK and also internationally, and I've been asked to come and do some science experiments on their stand at the conference to increase people's awareness of science education, which is what I'm doing. So I'm making hot air balloons uh, using toasters and bin bags. I'm demonstrating the power of resonance using a shelf I stole from my oven. My wife <laughs> was on the phone last night and she said, do you know where the shelf has gone from our oven? And I said, yeah, it's here in Reading. Uh, and I'm also doing some other uh, just interesting experiments with infrared cameras. I've turned a webcam into an infrared camera so that you can see why an energy-saving light bulb is much better than a normal incandescent light bulb in terms of the amount of energy it doesn't waste. Oh, wow. That that sounds all fascinating. Actually, science has just got an interesting one all of a sudden. We're taking your calls at 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Questions for the Naked Scientist. Your SMS is to 31567 and to 31702. And the first one we're going to uh, fire off with, Chris, is from Sam. Sam would like to know, how do cats know how to get back to their old home when one moves house uh, to within the same area? Well, Cats, especially, but many, many animals, are very well equipped with extremely good navigation systems. Because from an evolutionary point of view, being able to find your way around means literally the difference between life and death. And the animals, including humans, can do this because we keep a very good mental map of the world around us. And this is built in a structure in the brain called the hippocampus, which you have two of these on each side of the brain, deep inside your temporal lobe, which is the bit of the brain adjacent to where your ear is. And what scientists have learned in recent years is that the nerve cells in that part of the brain are connected in a sort of grid system, a bit like the radar screen on air traffic controller's radar. And the position of a person in the environment is plotted on this grid system of nerve cells. So the nerve cells corresponding to where a person is in the environment 
with respect to visual objects, with respect to smells and other memories are all plotted. And this is done in three dimensions. And so animals know where they are at any one time. And you can also add to that the ability to use other senses to inform where you are. So some animals, for instance, are very well tuned into the Earth's magnetic field. And scientists have done experiments on bats where they know that bats use the Earth's magnetic field in order to navigate. And lots of other animals do that too. But you can, if you jet lag a bat, you can make it go off course because it sets its uh, compass in its head using the rising of the sun and the Earth's magnetic field to work out which direction it's going in at any one time. So animals have a really good sense of direction and they marry up visual cues with directional cues and plot it in this mental map to work out where they are. So I think that's the answer, that, that animals become very well, well aware of where they live and so they just seek out those same cues that they've remembered and they use their navigation systems to find them. And then the most intriguing one, first time I've come across this question, my wristwatch stops after five to six hours on my arm but runs fine on my wife's arm. Any ideas? Is it a wristwatch which is equipped with um, self-winding mechanisms because many watches, especially expensive ones, have a special self-winding system so they have some uh, asymmetrically balanced weight inside. So every time you move your arm, these weights swing backwards and forwards in a sort of circular motion and they're on a ratchet and that circular motion is used to wind the spring on the watch and this keeps the watch wound up. So as long as you keep moving then it keeps the watch in tip-top uh, wound state. And it might be, if it is one of those watches, that the person who, who, when the watch is being worn, finds that it stops working, they're just less active or less jittery than the other person. So it might just be that one person makes a lot of hand movements and the other one makes fewer. All right. <laughs> as simple as that then. Uh, and then a, an intriguing one from Tanya saying, why, when I'm trying to sneeze, does looking at the sun help me to get it out? Uh, this is something called the photic sneeze reflex. Uh, scientists have been looking at this, especially scientists who are working with the aircraft industry, and in particular the military, because jet pilots often fly towards the sun or get enormous amounts of light coming in, and if they were to have a sneezing fit when they're flying at 1,000 miles an hour, this could be quite deleterious for them, the aircraft, and other people. So... There, there appears to be this phenomenon called the photic sneeze reflex. About one person in five is affected, and adults um, who have this will know it because when they go from a dark area into a light area, I'm one of them, it usually triggers off at least one sneeze, often a, a volley of sneezing. And people used to think that this was because when you went into the light, this would make your eyes water a little bit, and the watering eyes would cause the tears to run down into the nose, tickle the nose, and then trigger a sneeze. But when they did studies on this, they found that actually that can't be the case because the sneezing happens far too quickly for it to be tears running down. So instead, what uh, scientists think is happening is that for the people who have this, and it seems to run in families, it's probably some kind of wiring phenomenon going on in the brainstem, the part of the brain that connects your spinal cord up to the main part of the brain, where many of your day-to-day uh, -day, day -day living functions are coordinated, like breathing and blood pressure, your blink reflex, uh, your pupil constriction, and so on. And they think that when you expose to bright lights, the same nerve pathways that make your pupils get smaller or make you blink 
uh, also spill over some of their excitement into the part of the brain that controls sneezing and the sneeze reflex. And that then triggers off the sneeze in the approximately one in five people who are sensitive in that way. And uh, just another one from Pete actually saying, why do I experience a bit of nausea just before I sneeze? I don't seem to be alone in this. I've never heard of that before. No, I, I haven't come across that. It might just be that uh, in the same way that you've got all of these bits of the brain that are controlling these functions all gathered together in a very small area of the brainstem, it might just be that when you're gearing up for a big sneeze, it also stimulates some of the centers that are corresponding to uh, sensation from the abdomen in your viscera. And maybe it just um, fools the body into thinking it feels unwell or feels unpleasant sensations coming from there. In fact, it's just referred discomfort caused by excitement in the brain area that's going to trigger a sneeze. That's speculation, though, so I don't know the answer. I'm just guessing. All right, so let's take a call from George in Florida Lake. Hello, George. To Africa and to Chris. Chris, I'd like to ask you something. I've been diagnosed after a blood analysis that I've got enough iron storage in my body, but the conversion for use does not seem to happen properly. Is this a condition or is it a disease? Hello, George. Um, Based on what you've told me, and obviously I can't really do on-air diagnoses because that's dangerous and not very ethical, but just talking about iron in the body, um, there is a condition called hemochromatosis, hemochromatosis. This is a genetic disorder, and it tends to, or, or it's associated with the body being a bit too good at collecting iron and storing it. And in women, this, this condition is a bit protective, especially in women who are having heavy periods because women have a relative deficiency of iron and that's because they have menstrual cycles, whereas men don't menstruate and therefore men are usually iron replete throughout life as long as they eat a reasonable diet. And if you have hemochromatosis, what, what the body is doing is overloading the body with iron because it's possible to get iron into the body, but there's very little in the way of mechanisms to get iron back out of the body. So once it's in, it can't be got rid of and it can accumulate. And if you have this hemochromatosis, it's a genetic uh, problem. The iron is picked up from the diet in excess and then deposited in various tissues and it can cause problems with the liver, with the heart and various things given enough time. But it's actually quite easy to remedy because there are, there are drugs that can stop this accumulating and there are also ways of removing iron from the body by turning people into blood donors. So if you take blood away because blood has got hemoglobin in it the hemoglobin has got iron at its center you can take iron away from people that way and then you get their iron levels down so i, I would speculate that that may be what has been found in yourself but without knowing the exact indices of what they found in you i can't really speculate any further as to what that might be but the answer is that because they know about it the likelihood is the outcome for you would be very good because it can be well managed before it becomes a problem all right george thank you very much for your call philip is in pretoria hello philip Good morning, and hi, Chris. Um, I'd just like to ask a question about lightning. Um, very often when there's a storm, you see a huge flash of, of, of lightning, and, and it's always accompanied uh, sometimes a few seconds later by, by thunder, a real hard clap. But very often there is um, flashes of light in the clouds, but there's no thunder accompanying it. And I'd like to know why that is. Thanks, Philip. Hello, Philip. Um, yeah, let's just revise what's going on with thunder and lightning to start with. So 
in clouds you have these tiny particles called hydrometeors, which are ice particles, which get buffeted around inside the cloud and they do the cloud equivalent of you rubbing a balloon on your head and building up static charge. And we don't know exactly why, but these particles, there are big ones and small ones, and the small ones go to the top of the cloud and get a positive charge, and the big ones stay towards the bottom of the cloud and get a negative charge. So the cloud has a, a sort of battery inside it, and the strong abundance of these negative charges towards the bottom of the cloud creates a very strong electric field between the cloud base and the Earth's surface, because the Earth is Earth, obviously, excuse the pun, and the excess of negative charge at the cloud base wants to find a route to dissipate and when the electric field becomes sufficiently big then the air separating the cloud base and the earth's surface becomes ionized and what that means is that the strong electric field rips some electrons away from the molecules in the air and those electrons are able to carry a current between the cloud base and the earth's surface and the current is huge it's thousands of amps at millions of volts so the amount of energy being dissipated is billions of joules, I think between 1 and 10 billion joules in every lightning bolt. And this discharge heats the air to about 30,000 degrees Celsius, which is actually about five or six times hotter than the sun's surface. And that intense heating effect causes the air to very rapidly expand because when you put energy into a gas, the molecules move faster, so they expand, they push against each other harder and try to get further apart from each other. And that happens so quickly that all of the molecules collide and buffet into each other and creates a shock wave, which we experience as thunder. And so whenever you get this effect of superheating of the air, you should get a thundercloud. Some other forms of lightning, though, don't occur between the cloud base and the ground. They occur within clouds. The cloud effectively shorts out internally. And the energy is dissipated much higher up into the air. And it could just be that when you see these discharges in the cloud, they're a smaller, they're, they're actually exciting smaller amounts of the air, and therefore the amount of energy given into the air might be a bit less, and therefore the amount of heating might be a bit less, and so the thunderclap is a bit less, and also it might be that it's just so much further away and also higher up that by the time the sound reaches you, it's largely faded into the background noise of you know, the, the throb of traffic and so on. That would be my best guess. That's a very credible sounding guess there, Chris. Thank you very much. In Cape Town, we don't get to experience a lot of uh, lightning and thunder and stuff. And there's something, obviously, that in Gauteng, particularly this time of the year, they get to see a lot of. But uh, you, you certainly painted a picture that is most intriguing. And I'm now wishing, I'm wishing that, you know, after all this heat wave that we're experiencing in Cape Town, that we get some of that thunder and lightning <laughs> just for, even if it is just for an afternoon, then I'll appreciate it very differently. Rian is in Menlin. Hello, Rian. Hi there, Africa and Chris. Um, Chris, a question on gravity. Does gravity populate instantaneously or propagate instantaneously or at the speed of light? Uh, hello, Ria. Um, I am not a cosmologist or a gravity expert, but I do know. It's one of those things that I know, but I don't necessarily understand the basis to it. I do know that the current theory is that gravity propagates uh, probably via a particle called a graviton, which is thought to propagate at the speed of light. So if you were to do a thought experiment and if the sun were to vanish from the centre of our solar system, it would actually take the time it takes light from the sun getting to the earth before a gravity consequence of the sun's disappearance were felt here on earth. 
And for those of us that don't understand what propagate means, do you just want to uh, elaborate on that concept? Yeah, sure. So when you send something from one place to another, and if you think of a wave, uh, if you had a piece of rope and you were standing at one end of that piece of rope after and I was standing at the other and I wiggled the rope at my end, a wiggly wave would travel down the rope from my hand towards your hand mm-hmm. and that movement, the displacement of the rope would said to be the propagation of a wave along the rope. And when a radio wave or light from the sun leaves the sun and moves through space towards the earth, that wave is said to be propagating through space. It's the movement of an electromagnetic field. And similarly, gravity waves will propagate, move through space, we think, at the speed of light. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Stephen called us a little bit earlier about uh, electricity and the fact that uh, in the route that he drives in Gauteng, the streetlights are on. And of course, uh, South Africa, the last couple of years, has had big, big issues with electricity and everybody is being asked to save. Uh, somebody sending an SMS asking, does switching a geezer off at the distribution box for, say, 12 hours daily save electricity? It's quite a hard one to answer this because it, it will come down to how well insulated your tank is. Because what the geezer is doing is heating water in the hot water tank and once the water reaches a threshold temperature that you can determine, then it switches off. It waits until the water temperature comes down again, which will be caused by either you using some of the water or energy from the water leaking out of the tank because the insulation isn't perfect. And when the water temperature drops to a threshold level, then it will heat it back up again to that level. Now, if you've got a really, really well-insulated tank and you're not using water during the day, the heat loss from the tank is going to be very low. Therefore, the workload done by the geezer is pretty low and therefore the amount of electricity you'll save by turning it off is pretty low. Um, so I think really it, it's all going to come down to whether or not you've got a really well-insulated system or not. All right, thanks for that, uh, Chris. Uh, Douglas is in Somerset West with a cricketing question. Hello, Douglas. Good morning. Hello? Yes, go ahead. What's your question? Um, well, actually, it's bowling. We've had a, a little debate in our club about how to keep cool on the bowling green in the heat wave. And is there anything wrong in wearing a sort of a wet, damp towel around your neck to keep cool? Hello, Douglas. Um, I suppose it, it all comes down to, as long as it's a fashionable towel and you don't mind wearing it <laughs> and you don't mind being a bit damp around the neck, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, the reason that a cool surface feels colder is because when the water evaporates, assuming that the air is not at 100% humidity, in other words, there's there's less water in the air than there could be, then there is an energetically favorable uh, movement of water from the place where it is in your towel into the air. And as the water turns from a liquid into a vapor in the air, it has to take the energy to do that from somewhere. And this is known as um, the uh, latent heat of vaporization. And this is very well manifest. If you take a drop of alcohol, whiskey, gin, or, or ethanol, whatever, laboratory ethanol, and you put it on your skin, the skin feels much colder when the alcohol is there until it evaporates. And this is because the alcohol, just like water on the skin, is robbing energy from your skin to give the molecules enough energy to break away from each other because the molecules are a bit sticky and they have to break apart to get away from each other and that takes energy. That energy is coming from your skin and this makes you cool down. So 
So the damp towel around your neck will rob energy from your neck and your body and from the air close to you in order to make the water turn from a liquid into a gas and therefore it will cool you down as long as the air isn't completely saturated, in other words, 100% humidity. And that's why you have wind chill and that's why you feel cold. If you get damp and then the wind blows, you feel much colder than if you're dry and the wind blows. Douglas, uh, I have no doubt that that answered your question. Uh, uh, Chris, obviously, big, big, big lightning says in Gauteng. So a number of SMS is coming in. One from Benjamin saying, is it true that keeping a window open avoids lightning from striking your house? Uh, I think that's really unlikely. Um, as I say, the lightning is coming from a cloud base, which is tens of kilometers up in the air, down to the ground. And the lightning is seeing uh, a ground contour, in other words, the, the surface of the ground, and it's looking for a point which is where the electric field is most focused. And you can think of the electric field as a bit like contour lines on a map. And so where you have a high point, the contour lines, and it's very steep, the contour lines are very close together. And so sharp, pointy objects like houses, antennae, aerials, church steeples, that kind of thing, are going to focus the electric field more, and so they're more prone to be attractive to lightning. And so opening a window in your house is probably actually not going to, to make a lot of difference, I wouldn't have thought. You have informed a whole lot of households out there, Chris. Lynn is in Krugersdorp. Hello, Lynn. Hello, Africa and Chris. My question is also about lightning. We have a suburb in our town which is on the side of a ridge. And when there is lightning, our electricity goes off more than any of the surrounding suburbs. And we've been told by the officials that it is because of the rocks in the ridge that the lightning is attracted to our area. I w secondly, I wanted to know, is there a technology that can be used to prevent this? All right, Lynn. So, so you're wanting to know whether the rocks are attracting the lightning and what, therefore, the technology that can be used to, to prevent it? Okay, I'm not an electrical distribution engineer, but I'll have a sort of speculation as to what might be going on. Um, in some countries, Australia is another one, where there is enormous amounts of conductive material in the ground. In Australia, for instance, there's a huge amount of iron in the ground. That in some places, with the early telegraphs, they didn't actually need to have a return cable on the telegraph because you could just stick a pin in the ground and the ground could propagate the signal for you. This means that uh, the, the, there's an enormous source of free electrons in the ground for the absorption of a lightning bolt and the ground potential will raise enormously when the lightning comes in. This means that if you've got uh, your electricity distribution system and it's earthed, which of course it will be, then the ground potential of the earth is going to come up enormously if there's a lightning bolt nearby and the distribution equipment is, for safety reasons, very sensitive to if the ground potential changes because this can indicate that there's electricity being lost from the system and as a safety mechanism it shuts down because it thinks that it's losing energy somewhere and there must be a short circuit or something and I suspect the reason your electricity is going off is for that reason um, exactly um, what you can do to stop it I don't know um, we need someone who works for a power company to explain this a bit better than I can Chris Smith, thank you very much, good sir. Happy New Year. Looking forward to hearing you uh, for the balance of the year on this uh, wonderful, wonderful feature. Uh, somebody asking, is there a picture of uh, Chris? Of course there's a picture of Chris on our website. Go to capetalk.co.za, Click on Rudy Clavi's uh, uh, face and you'll see the picture of uh, the naked scientist, Chris Smith. Uh, enjoy the rest of your conference, good sir. 
Africa, thanks very much for having me. And uh, again, Happy New Year to you and have a, have a great 2011. For sure. Thank you very much, Dr. Chris Smith, Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.